This is the Eco Business Podcast. I'm Robin Hicks. Less than 3% of the ocean is protected, and yet the global fish catch has been declining since the 1990s. Three quarters of fish species are overfished, and shark numbers have declined by 90%. On today's podcast, we're going to talk about an ambitious plan to conserve 30% of the ocean by 2030. This would mean that a global network of marine protected areas would be off limits to fishing and other commercial practices such as mining. Hitting the 30 by 30 target is critical to ensuring the long-term health of our planet and curbing the effects of climate change, say its proponents. But is such an ambitious plan realistic? One of the conservation groups working towards the plan is Conservation International, and I'm joined today by the Senior Vice President at the Centre of Oceans at Conservation International, Orlani Wilhelm. Welcome to the podcast, Orlani. Oh, thank you so much, Robin. It's great to be here, and thanks for what you do. Um, in eco-business. That's really good to hear. And indeed, same with you guys at Conservation International. Um, Before we get on to discussing uh, a very big ambitious plan, the campaign to protect 30% of the ocean by 2030, I want to ask you what your favorite species of ocean living animal is and why? (laughs) Oh, that's funny. It's so hard to choose, right? There are so many incredible animals So I just might cheat a bit then and actually talk about a seabird, Laysan albatross. And I say that because they um, make their nesting and their their home in the islands of uh, Hawaii in Popohanaumokuakea, a very large marine protected area that I helped to lead the protection of and then was manager for that. And these animals are just so incredible, right? They're completely necessary to the ocean. They're dependent on the ocean. They contribute to the ocean. And they're, they're some of the most resilient, beautiful creatures, um, elegant in their own way, except maybe when they land. And I'm always just in awe of seabirds in general, but I think Laysan albatross are quite beautiful. So tell us a bit about how marine protected areas work and what they're for. Yeah, you know, the the call to protect more and more of both the land and the sea has been growing, right? And we have a current, we we had a current target that was set back in 2010 to protect 10% of the world's ocean by 2020, right, last year. And it also had a land goal of 17%. So the world really under the Convention on Biodiversity was really focused on that. And 2020 was you know, all of us working in ocean conservation were really gearing up for a really big year in oceans. There were a number of convenings that were happening and there was great momentum to kind of move the world to achieve that 10%. And then, well, you know, a small thing called a global pandemic caught us all by surprise and really shut that down. I mean, along with many, many things. But the great thing is that scientific consensus has been building on this anyway. And it started before 2020 and it's now very strong. And really science tells us that we need to really urgently protect and conserve at least 30% of both the land and sea by 2030 in order to really curb biodiversity loss. And people say, well, biodiversity loss, you know, why is that important? I think, you know, simply put is that we need to protect that 30% if we want to have a fighting chance against climate change and other human impacts, because biodiversity means that nature can continue to provide 
all the things that we demand from it, right? And we're kind of demanding as humans. We want nature to provide us oxygen, for example, and food, stable weather, you know, rainfall, not only to drink, but to make sure that we have agriculture. And, and of course, not to mention the more intangible, but really necessary cultural, spiritual, and, and health benefits that human beings from the beginning of us becoming human beings have really always relied on. What's stopping us from protecting more of the ocean at the moment, Olani? We're still at about under 3% of the ocean is highly protected, right? So what are the sort of challenges we're facing in increasing that, that proportion? Well, I think there's a couple of things. One is that, you know, people are, are land people. Is my, even people who live on coasts or live on islands, right? When we stand at our shoreline and we look out and we see the horizon and we think, my God, that's so far away. That's only like about five miles or, you know, eight or whatever kilometers, right? It's, it's not far at all. And when we really realize that, the, you know, the ocean is about 70% of the planet, people have a really hard time imagining what it looks like well beyond that horizon that we see. What does that really mean, right? And people don't really understand. And quite frankly, in the open ocean, right, the high seas, a lot of which is deep ocean, we have never really explored that. So we have so much yet to understand, but the little that we do know about the ocean is that, or about the deep ocean is how much already, you know, it holds in terms of, of biodiversity in terms of unique species that can really help us to, you know, to solve lots of these, like lots of our, well, provide lots of our needs, but also help us solve things like, you know, bring important compounds to science or to health, as well as to store carbon, right? We don't even understand that. So I think the first thing is that we're, we don't have gills. I think another thing is that um, the ocean has largely been dominated by just a few industries, right? And for the most part, the industries have been able to kind of do what they do. And countries have really focused on their governance on land where people are, right? It's complicated. People are complicated. So we focus our work and our policy kind of in zoning of land, but we don't think about, gosh, if the ocean were land, we would never just kind of leave it ungoverned or unplanned and just have technical laws, but not really do much to enforce them. So I think it's really, we have to change how people think about and hold oceans and how countries really realize their economic potential, right? That this is the food, this is their food security. It's the buffer for national security. Um, it can provide lots of new industries as well in helping us to solve the climate crisis that we're facing, even in terms of ocean energy and other things yet to be developed. But countries need to really see that as part of their, their national wealth. Do people really understand the benefits of protecting the ocean, do you think? I was reading that in the Solomon Islands, the catch of clam fishermen fishing just outside a marine reserve increased by seven times just three years after the creation of that reserve. Um, is the value of protecting nature sinking in? Recently, I think it was just at the end of last year, a Cambridge report kind of came out that found that the economic benefits of protecting 30% of the planet outweigh costs by a ratio of five to one, right? So that means that inaction actually costs us more than taking action, 
and in that case, five times more. And also uh, that report talked about that in terms of recovery from COVID specifically, that the nature sector is expected to grow four to 6% per year compared to less than 1% in kind of primary industries of agriculture, timber and fisheries. And I think that that has a lot to do with its links of, again, resilience and its links to, to, to climate. Um, I think McKinsey also put out a study late last year, maybe in the fall that found that protecting 30% would support 30 million jobs just in ecotourism and sustainable fisheries and directly add 650,000 new jobs in conservation management. And in dollar terms, somewhere upward of about 500 billion in GDP, just in ecotourism and sustainable fisheries. They didn't even look broader than that. Also potentially where, depending on where that 30% is placed, if we really match it with areas that have high carbon value, it could reduce the estimated emissions by 2.6 gigatons annually. So these are the kinds of things that are coming out increasingly. And I think we'll really be able to arm um, leaders and decision makers with the information that they've really needed, right? And that perhaps is a third reason to your question earlier of why are we not doing more? I think we've really needed to, to arm um, our leaders with the information so they can feel confident, right? That, that what they're doing in protecting the land and sea really makes sense. You know, countries aren't waiting for the CBD to be agreed upon, right? I mean, just a few weeks ago, Panama just expanded their COIBA um, marine protected area in the Pacific to encompass 30% of their waters, right? Becoming the second Latin American country to do that. I mean, that's pretty incredible. And then late last year, you might've read this, but the, the small island community of Tristan de Cunha um, created the largest marine protected area in the Atlantic Ocean, right? They set aside, I think it's 90% of their marine domain, their exclusive economic zone for conservation, right? It's two times the size of the Great Barrier Reef. This is an wow. island community of 260 people, That's right? Amazing. These communities are not waiting for, for the 30% goal to change. They see the science that's out there and they're taking action, which is super inspiring. Globally, we spend less on protecting nature than we spend on ice cream, even though nature is our life support system. Um, and I was also reading, correct me if I'm wrong here, Lani, that creating um, marine protected areas or protecting nature cost in the region of $140 billion per year. But that is a fraction of what is spent by governments on subsidies that go towards destructive fishing practices or other practices that, that harm our oceans. I want to ask you about the reality, though, that how realistic hitting this ambition is for 30% uh, of the oceans protected by 2030, specifically around fishermen livelihoods. One question that was put to me was, um, what will fishermen do while there's a ban on fishing in a marine protected area? How will they sustain themselves in the interim? So I've been involved in this growing field of large scale marine protected areas like Popohanaumokuakea that I mentioned earlier. You know, it's 1.5 million square kilometers or about three and a half times the size of California, just to give you a sense of scale. You know, and mm. if you added up all of these, you know, already, that sounds big, but as you mentioned earlier, it's only about 3% that are 
really highly protected. And depending on which global database you use, maybe upward of seven, 7.8% um, of that mix is highly protected with managed areas that have been committed, right? So there's a lot of experience here that can be put into place. And there's and with these increasing commitments that are being made by countries, I do think we have um, a, a real chance at achieving this ambition. With that said, it's going to take not only a focus on national exclusive economic zones or national waters, it's also going to require countries to, to sign on to supporting and protecting the high seas, right? The high seas are half the planet um, and are kind of that open ocean, that open domain that are, is part of the international community and therefore part of the international obligations to protect it. So we, we would have a really hard time achieving that 30% um, without the high seas just by math, math alone. So I am optimistic that we can make huge progress and even achieve that 30%, at least in terms of designation. But you know, the work of, of really implementing these uh, marine protected areas, marine managed areas, ocean conservation areas, however you wanna call them, you know, is, an, is enduring work. And so it's gonna take longer than 2030 to really get all of these commitments up and running. So switching to your question about, about um, fishermen, I just wanna start by, by suggesting that, you know, MPAs aren't actually the biggest threat to the fishing industry or individual fishermen, nor are all fishermen the same, right? So impacts of any changes in ocean governance are gonna be different and are gonna land differently. And in fact, impacts to one type of fishing, like maybe industrial fishing, has an impact on more near shore domestic fishing, which would have impact on, you know, those who are, are fishing for their, you know, near shore livelihood or, or um, sustenance, right? These all have, um, have, have impact on each other. I also, you know, as we just talked about, you know, MPAs, you know, as we just, you know, rattled off some statistics are already proving to enhance fisheries. I also will say that issues of illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing are, in my opinion, the biggest threats to fishing, right? And we focus typically on the illegal bit, like how much in, in country or national waters is being stolen, and, and certainly we should. But improvements are really needed in the unreported category and the unregulated category. Um, and that kind, of, uh, those, that kind of work actually can be addressed more effectively now already with or without MPAs, right? It's within national, subnational, and regional government uh, abilities now to take action on those. And MPAs shouldn't be solving those. There are mechanisms already in place that, that can be utilized to actually get a better handle. And if we were able to deal with some of those issues and deal with bycatch better, you know, we would be able to have really much more robust and sustainable fisheries. Things can be done. And there's lots of examples around the world where alongside these changes, there have been efforts to help fishers transition, right? Either to transition into another area, to transition or to be able to re retrofit their vessels to fish for more species so that they can change it seasonally, right? And those kinds of efforts I think should be done wherever and whenever possible. You mentioned earlier on that there's a target for 2020 that sadly wasn't hit. Um, can we hit this target? And um, do you have any advice 
for anyone listening about how they can help us um, meet this target to conserve our oceans. Yeah, you know, you, I can't be in this business without hope, right? So yes, I definitely have hope that we can turn things around. And I have to hold out hope that we can achieve or make good headway in the 20 by uh, 30 by 30 goal, excuse me. So we have the science, right? We have the examples in terms of large scale marine protected areas that already exist on how to actually implement them and to do them right. What we need is the political and social will. And because these solutions that we're trying to bring forward, it's gonna take generations to, to make sure that these solutions can actually have the impact. And so we need to set it up that way. And we need to make sure that people are part of the design and the implementation and that it, it's real. Orlani Wilhelm, thank you so much for joining the Eco Business Podcast. Hey, Robin, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. This podcast was hosted by EcoBusiness, Asia's leading media company serving the region's sustainability community. Join the conversation by visiting eco-business.com, follow us on social media, or subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.